so we're um, clearly living in a moment where uh, where we have, on the one hand, a resurgence of many traditional ideas uh, about uh, gender, about race, um, about class, um, and. Uh, we, on the other hand, are living through a period of rapid change um, where how these identities are policed, what they mean, where they're vested, um, appears to be in a profound state of flux. So I talked a little bit about um, um, uh, Little Pigeon uh, last episode, uh, the uh, Clara B. Nicholas, the... Um, um, Delaware indigenous convert to um, what was then the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, today known as the Community of Christ. Um, and uh, Clara Nicholas was part of this effort uh, by um, uh, the RLDS to uh, retain some of their traditional beliefs and traditional scriptures uh, by using a kind of um, proto-identitarian standpoint epistemology. So in this way, their indigenous converts could continue to believe unscientific things, whereas their non-indigenous converts couldn't because epistemology about the universe was vested in the consciousness and identity of persons rather than um, in a shared epistemological practice. So the idea was, and we see this uh, today in British Columbia, right, that um, uh, many uh, activists will take the position that if um, uh, an indigenous person makes a certain kind of unscientific assertion, um, that assertion is indisputable. So, for instance, the idea that uh, the uh, Haida people or an autochthonous people who were created on Haida Gwaii uh, at the beginning of time uh, by their god, or um, the uh, the idea that the, the Cowichan people um, uh, fell from the sky uh, 100,000 years ago, or any of uh, what uh, the response typically in um, what we might call progressive circles is to say that those are uncontestable truths, but only insofar as what is true about historical time is true for this particular racialized group of people and can't be outwardly generalized. And so in this way, you enter into a kind of ontological dualism where evolution is both true and not true. Uh, the bearing migration is both true and not true. And it can sit there in this halfway house because the ability to know the history of indigenous people lives on, in the blood and is written on the body. Uh, now, this is a pretty common move. Um, by anthropologists, by political activists, um, makes people feel pretty progressive, uh, like uh, like the land acknowledgements. 
the movements or the, let's say, discourse communities within indigenous groups to whom this thinking appeals um, are um, groups we call neo-traditionalist. Um, neo-traditionalism is a crucial, is, I would argue, the primary context in which we're understanding um, uh, the identitarian turn. And I'll, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. The, but let's take a moment to think about neo-traditionalist movements are a very common type of social movement. Um, they, and they are always a response to a, a particular problem that societies face again and again. Uh, when a society is forced to change very, very rapidly, um, a minority of people in that society will identify with and enjoy the experience of rapid change. Uh, most people uh, find uh, rapid social change uh, highly uncomfortable and unpleasant, and um, uh, and uh, and and uh, and try to oppose changes of things that are familiar, things that. Um, give them a sense of uh, stability. Um, Neo-traditionalism is the most common tool for solving that problem. What it does is it describes the changes the society is rapidly making as originating in the past, that the present is an aberration and this, the rapid social change that they're experiencing is in fact a return to a known and stable and secure past. Uh, Neo-traditionalism is uh, a very, very effective way to allow people to change very rapidly and narrate that change in a way that doesn't feel threatening to them. Uh, and, uh, when we um, when we align with um, so progressives uh, really like indigenous neo traditionalists um, they um, they enjoy uh, people who argue that they are um, either the faithful remnant of a past version of their civilization or they're leaders of a modern movement to return that civilization to its, uh, to a kind of Edenic past. Um, our allies, right, within the, the our comrades in um, uh, fighting against uh, the pipeline here are the neo-traditionalists in the Wet'suwet'en, uh, among the Wet'suwet'en people. And there are other social movements among the Wet'suwet'en that are not neo-traditionalist. And um, we tend to, um, uh, progressives are much less likely to ally with, uh, with those movements. Um, uh, because those movements' agenda is not aligned with um, some of the things that uh, that that uh, that we care about, uh, like climate justice, um, uh, collective land holding, um, 
uh, prohibiting clear-cut logging, right? These are, uh, these are causes that the, um, uh, that the environmental movement, that uh, socialists uh, tend to stand behind. And so since the 1980s, we've seen a very rapid, um, very rapid uh, development of this, um, of this uh, progressive neo-traditionalist alliance uh, when we're engaged in indigenous land politics. And it's not just here in British Columbia, uh, it's the world over, right? Uh, the Zapatista movement of uh, Subcomandante Marcos, uh, the, the, the Mayan separatists and communalists in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, who um, went to war to stop NAFTA. Uh, this is an example of a, of a neo-traditionalist movement that, um, again, um, we fell in with. Um, the, uh, and it, uh, it should surprise us not at all that um, these movements um, have uh, placed a great deal of importance on inherited class and on uh, gender norms. Uh, so in, uh, in Zapatista villages, although the Zapati uh, in the Zapatista villages, you have a men's store and a women's store. Shopping is segregated, for instance. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, here, in, um, when we look at our alliance with the Wet'suwet'en, we see the importance of aristocratic uh, title to land, the term the hereditary chiefs, consistently being used as a legitimating discourse. Now it's interesting, right, that when we find a way to make common cause, um, it's very easy for us to be swept up in the, um, not just in the immediate dividends of these alliances and the pr their productivity, the fact that the, the people who are most like us in indigenous communities are parts of neo-traditionalist movements often. Uh, so there's a, there's a tremendous sense of identification. But on top of that, there's also, of course, a European romanticism. And, and this is old, right? This goes, this goes before William Wordsworth, before Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, we really see this uh, almost from the beginning of the European written tradition. There's a famous line in uh, Herodotus's The Histories uh, where he's uh, describing um, the different uh, peoples of the world and he gets to the very periphery of the known world and he talks about the blameless Ethiopians who still dine with the gods. And uh, that's a trope that has recurred again and again in Europeans encounter with indigenous people. We, um, when the Spanish arrived, uh, they wondered whether the fall had happened here, whether the people here had even been subject to original sin. Uh, so many of the Arawak and Carib peoples uh, did not wear very, very much in the way of clothing and did not seem ashamed. And so quickly people, your, uh, a tendency in European thought went to, these people are not subject to the fall. They're, they're not sinful like us. They are an, an innocent people, like Herodotus's blameless Ethiopians who still dine with the gods. This, of course, 
uh, is only reinforced with the rise of the actual romantic movement. Um, and, uh, and we see um, this idea of the, the vanishing Indian, the noble savage, this, this disappearing uh, extraordinarily noble thing. And so, of course, in our alliances, we play on that. We play on that trope. But one of the things that um, is interesting to me is that um, generally um, people, just even the term progressive uh, indicates that um, those on the left who see themselves as, as progressive, just embedded in the word is the opposite accommodation with change. So, Progressives believe that uh, the world is changing rapidly and that they are embracing those changes. Those changes are changes they're ushering in. And unlike neo-traditionalists, they believe that the change that is naturally unfolding, the march of history, is going to a good place. Um, which, you know, is... Um, and so it's like, well, the so the Trump movement is an aberration. Uh, the um, uh, the rise of authoritarianism is an aberration, right? We know where progress is really heading. Um, we know what the future really is. This future we're in, there's something wrong there. But that's because people are against progress. Um, but in fact, if we look at what progressive movements do, um, what they do is they pick parts of the collapsing social contract and they defend them. Uh, so we live in a world in which the progressives are the conservatives and the conservatives are the progressives in which, um, and it's funny because you could just, so right. The progressives, they defend um, public health care. Uh, right, because healthcare is being increasingly privatized, and and a progressive thing to do is to defend public healthcare. Um, government regulation of monopolies. Um, the government is doing that less and less, and progressives defend the government regulation of monopolies. Um, and um, right, or maybe it's environmental regulation, or maybe it's a forest. Um, but what progressives do, not what they say they do, is they pick a particular part of the current order that's threatened and they defend it. And for me, the moment where I could really see how this has become, this has really taken on a life of its own is, uh, was Brexit. Now in the 1990s, everyone on the left, every socialist um, in, uh, in the British Labour Party uh, and most in uh, um, really all through Europe, the parties of the left strongly opposed the Maastricht Treaty uh, in 1994. The Maastricht Treaty is the labour and financial backbone of the European Union. Um, why did we oppose it? Well, um, it dropped all of these trade barriers and abolished all this regulation. So 
and uh, we didn't think free grasses did not think free trade was a good idea in the 1990s because we had had high national trade barriers and tariffs that diversified our economies and funded government coffers. And as we took those tariffs down, the government coffers emptied and um, our economies became less diverse because we couldn't subsidize individual sectors to balance out and have a diverse economy. So some countries deindustrialized as a result of these trade agreements. Now the first um, agreement like this was, um, that was uh, multinational was NAFTA in 1993. And we, we all opposed NAFTA. Um, we elected centrist governments that promised not to sign it. Bill Clinton, Jean Chrétien, um, they were, got in on a mandate to stop it. So um, we were strongly opposed to trade liberalization, uh, tariff reduction, and the like. Maastricht is the main document that does that for the European Union. What else does the Maastricht Treaty do? It created the incentives for the use of migrant Eastern European labor and Southern European labor to undercut the wages of agricultural workers in Northern Europe uh, by, by implementing a personality of law with respect to your minimum wage. So while criminal law would change as you went from one European country to another, um, so you'd be subject to English criminal law when you were in England and uh, Spanish criminal law when you were in Spain. Um, thanks to Maastricht, your minimum, the minimum wage followed you. So if you were a Pole, your minimum wage didn't change when you crossed a border. And of course, um, what that permitted was um, the... Um, uh, pauperization of agricultural work in Northern Europe, pauperization of industrial work, etc. So Maastricht um, devastated uh, wages. What else did Maastricht do? Uh, well, it um, most importantly, it uh, brought in uh, what are called the national treatment provisions. Uh, and that is, if a um, um, uh, I'm coming back to neo-traditionalism, uh, fear not, Sarah. Uh, it um, so uh, so. What happened? Uh, what happens is, if um, a government brings in a new regulation um, that makes your company less profitable you can sue that government in a secret court to be compensated for the cost of that regulation or to be exempted from that regulation. Uh, we have this a fair bit in Canada. If um, there is something that the Canadian government decides is a dangerous toxin uh, in um, a uh, product um, uh, that America doesn't think is, or Mexico doesn't think is, the company can sue us for compensation or exemption. Um, Maastricht also uh, means that if the government uh, takes a, another provision of Maastricht as the investor rights, investor rights are similar to national treatment in that um, you can, um, uh, if the government 
nationalizes a sector or socializes a sector of the economy, every company that could have competed in that sector can sue the government for lost profits in perpetuity. So when, um, uh, the, uh, uh, when the Canada US Free Trade Agreement went into effect, um, one year, two years later, the government of Ontario attempted to socialize car insurance and create a company like ICBC. Um, and so the insurance industry in North America collectively sued the government for $1 trillion in lost future profits. Now, what this effectively means is that if the government privatizes anything, it can never afford to buy it back. You're on a one-way street as your economy privatizes. You can never turn it around. Um, and yet, uh, millions of Britons who had protested in the streets against Maastricht, who had voted for candidates opposing Maastricht, um, who had spent years in what we called the anti-globalization movement, uh, all opposed Brexit. The Even Jeremy Corbyn, who had voted against every one of these articles um, to expand the powers of the European Union, felt he had to campaign to oppose Brexit, even though if, if he had been elected prime minister, he would have been able to implement almost none of his promises without Brexit. He could not have renationalized the rail. He could not have deprivatized the NHS. None of the big picture items actually would have been permissible. And it's at this point, one has to recognize, I'm not saying there were no arguments for joining the EU on the left side in 94. I'm not saying there were no arguments on the left side for leaving the, for staying in the EU in, um, 2015. But I am saying that progressivism has taken on, um, has taken on a property we normally would only associate with, with conservatism, which is to begin to value things simply because they are part of the past. So it's in this context then that we, that we need to go up an optic and we need to look at the fact that it's not just indigenous societies that have neo-traditionalist factions. All societies have them because all societies are experiencing rapid change right now. The thing is that Neo-traditionalist arguments are generally arguments we find highly sinister. And we find neo-traditionalist movements highly sinister when they are outside of indigenous communities. Neo-traditionalist movements have slogans like, make America great again. That's as neo-traditionalist a slogan as you can possibly be. And what it really means is let us enter into an America of an utterly unknown future 
um, a totally unpredictable one that we're going to narrate as the return to a past we were never in. Uh, the, um, but that, that impulse, so one of the things that we need to do is instead of viewing neo-traditionalists or neo-traditionalist movements as good or bad, we need to ask them, um, we need to ask situationally, when is a movement neo-traditionalist versus when is a movement conservative? And we need to be able to see when we're looking at how identity is changing. We need to distinguish sharply between um, conservative politics of identity and neo-traditionalist politics of identity. Not because that will tell us whether those politics of identity merit support, but so that we can understand how these politics of identity operate. If we then think, well, how, how is neo-traditionalism operating at the level of social movements in our culture? I think we see um, that the linchpin of a lot of that is um, a new kind of Christianity, a new kind of religious fundamentalism in other societies. It's common for people to find a version, uh, to use a religious discourse, because for so much of the 20th century, thanks to the secularization thesis, we branded religion as part of the past. And so, um, uh, well, Sarah, I would argue that most people, uh, that not most people, but many people wearing MAGA hats are using their neo-traditionalism in the same way. I think that um, although, the, although Trump as an office holder isn't assisting them, I think that the people in the right to repair movement in West Virginia who are um, going to those meetings and attending those rallies, um, they're attempting to, to maintain local control over the means of production in just the most bizarrely Marxian way, right? The right to fix my tractor, the right to, to, to clone my seeds, the ability to uh, make our own alcohol, um, that uh, one of the things you can use neo-traditionalism for is for marginalized people to assert uh, rights they either held in the past or believe they held in the past. And uh, I, I think that um, whether you look to the political left or the political right, you could see examples of disempowered groups using neo-traditionalism to get that done. But it's also true that uh, neo-traditionalism tends to empower uh, people with forms of aristocratic or oligarchic power. Often, when we ally with um, indigenous neo-traditionalists, their leaders are not necessarily people we would side with on economic justice issues. If we were in their town, they, um, they share our agenda with respect to a shared, a common thing. But, um, you know, uh, indigenous neo-traditionalists um, are often um, people of aristocratic blood 
who um, see this, um, uh, who see the squandering of natural resources and the failure to protect them by uh, elected indigenous governments as an example of why aristocratic rule was right, why the highly vertical societies that existed before contact um, with the slavery and the body modification um, were, um, um, are an admirable thing, when, of course, it's far more complex than that um, on both sides. Um, also, to, to go to your point about minorities, I just wanted to wait for a minute before talking about Mormons again, but that, of course, is the other thing that the Mormons foreground for us in really upsetting ways, is that they are an oppressed minority <laughs> in America in a strange way. Um, and there's both external oppression on them and internalized oppression within them. So, um, right, what, what the Mormons attempted to do was um, maintain, um, you know, they were this distinct community that fled America in 1846, were annexed to America in 1848, and then, of course, made a series of compromises to maintain their distinct culture, um, which was rooted in, high, uh, in polygamy. And um, ultimately, uh, one of the things they did in order to maintain that culture was Utah Territory became the first jurisdiction in the United States to fully enfranchise women. Uh, and they did that in order to survive a referendum because the American government had shipped in all of these uh, copper miners um, who were going to vote to end polygamy because they weren't Mormons. And so, in a desperate measure, the, the Mormons gave women the vote. Um, and so, I have to remember that when there was a chance to vote on polygamy, Mormon women voted for it. Now, there are lots of bad reasons that happened. Um, but, you know, the response was to colonize Utah, to set up a set of federal grand juries, um, and uh, to have the entire leadership of their, their, the whole leadership of their church was in hiding. They were under martial law. Um, they were constantly being stripped of their assets, etc. And um, they uh, eventually capitulated and made this deal with the United States that um, they were not happy to make. Uh, Mormons face... Um, considerable discrimination on the part of evangelicals. Uh, the Mormon church is not allowed to be a member of the World Council of Churches. And um, if you go to uh, the, um, there's a fascinating event, uh, the Hill Kumora pageant um, in uh, upstate New York that I, I attended. So the Mormons have this, this, this thing called the Mormon Trail. It's the pilgrimage route that you take to follow uh, the Mormon pioneers from Sharon, Vermont to, uh, um, uh, to Utah. And um, a key moment on this trip is uh, the Hill Kumora. This is where Joseph Smith claimed he had found the golden tablets um, and was shown them by the angel in the cave. And uh, so and they put on a huge pageant where they reenact scenes from 
a past that did not happen, the past described in the Book of Mormon. So people wear these weird costumes and blah, blah, blah. But thousands, thousands of people come to this. And uh, thought I'd go. So you turn off the highway and you have to take a secondary road before you hit the private road that leads onto the hillside. And it's completely surrounded by evangelical protesters um, who scream at the Mormon families uh, and their children as they go in, um, uh, accusing them of being devil worshipers and uh, various things. You have to run this gauntlet of these evangelicals um, who... Uh, uh, I think my favorite of their slogans is uh, repent your phony repentance. Uh, but um, one of the interesting features is, um, right, unlike, I mean, the Mormons did a really, you know, terrible thing in funding Proposition 8 in California to stop gay marriage. But one must place this in the context of a culture um, that the federal government will not permit to enact its theory of marriage, that the uh, federal government, in fact, occupied a territory and jailed a huge percentage of its population in order to stamp out. Um, and this is especially a uh, problem, uh, and Mormons, uh, and so Mormons feel an oppressed minority within American Christianity, oppressed by the law, they and the federal government and the structure of America. Um, this, uh, and in many ways, they um, they resemble a colonized people um, with, um, uh, but with parity. So racialized groups in America that are racialized but uh, aren't poorer because they're racialized, uh, it's parity in, uh, in America. So um, uh, South and East Asian Americans uh, experience racism with parity. Uh, the Mormons, um, similar sort of group. Um, they're, um, and of course, uh, Unlike other groups, um, people like us have no problem making fun of them or discriminating against them because we don't like the values of Mormon society and we grant them no epistemological dispensation for believing the things they believe. Um, so the fact that a Mormon holds the belief that um, uh, that God spoke through Joseph Smith, that um, God is from the planet Kolob, that uh, when we die, we will become the gods of our own planets. Um, these things are not on, our, on their face more or less absurd to us than the Haida being an autochthonous people. We just like the Haida and we don't like the Mormons. Um, and there are some good reasons we like the Haida better than the Mormons, and there are some bad ones. Uh, but one of the things that I think really helps us, uh, really takes us toward 
where identitarianism is heading now is that there is, I would argue, a pattern that's starting to emerge um, around how Amer how there are moment there are places of real consensus around identitarianism. The ability to identify as is something we see on both sides of the the general um, you know centrifugal operation that's happening. You're allowed to identify as different things, but you're allowed to identify as things. Um, and you're allowed, and you're give, and you have more and more autonomous control over what you identify as, whether on the right you're identifying as white, or um, uh, whether you're identifying with respect to uh, to to gender on 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 the left. But we see that one of the differences, though, that's quite striking, is what I would call is, well, what we just have to call conversion. Um, we are seeing, if there is a left identitarianism and a right identitarianism that are distinct from one another, um, uh, and I'll, I'll get to the secular identity, Samina, because it, it really varies across, um, it varies across political jurisdictions really, really sharply as to whether one still, how one clings to a secular dream. Um, but uh, the conversion question abuts this. So when we look at conversion, what we see is that in right identitarianism, convert identities are the most legitimate identities, the most important identities, and the ones that, um, uh, and the ones that most merit defense. So, people change their identity when they become born again in Jesus Christ. It is the biggest identity shift uh, a person experience uh, that ex that is experienced. The number of people who convert to um, born again Christianity in uh, now known as evangelical Christianity in um, these evangelicals of the past wouldn't be part of these evangelicals. Um, in Western Europe, in North America, in the other white settler states, um, this is the most popular identity to adopt. One of the things that um, people, people on the left think it's a big deal if they know a person who has radically changed their theory of who they are suddenly um, or narrates that as being what they've done. Um, this is a normal and habitual experience on the political right. It's a standardized political experience. Um, sometimes people have to convert more than once. So they have to keep pressing the reset button whenever they've gotten too far away from the identity they thought they've adopted. Um, Evangelicals have a lot of marriages. Um, they switch churches and reconvert because the last one didn't take. Um, but they're always saying 
this was the past and now I'm this totally new person with a new identity and new friends, new affiliations. I understand myself differently. Um, and uh, we see that um, with right-wing politics. Uh, people, even if they don't leave their party, will join a different faction of their party and go, I was totally wrong before. I used to be a rhino, now I'm a real Republican. I, I, used, to be, um, I used to be a moderate, now I'm a conservative. I, uh, and, and these moments are celebrated and people will tell the story of their break. Read a, a, an article with a Donald Trump courtier. Um, the, the courtiers in the White House need conversion stories um, and they'll have multiple conversion stories within their life narrative in order to explain each term. Um, one of the things that should tell us that from a cultural perspective, um, progressives are the conservatives, uh, is that um, uh, progressives increasingly hate conversion stories and don't tell them. They, and that is that progressive culture is based around raising awareness. So that if you have to change your affiliation politically, if you have to join a new movement or quit a movement, what you will say is, um, I just became aware of this new information. My values haven't changed. Who I am as a person hasn't changed. This new imperative has not come from the transformation of my soul, but an increase in my knowledge. And that's why uh, people on the left will pointlessly raise awareness about things everybody already knows about and just doesn't care about. Uh, because even though that's not really how we ourselves even change, we, uh, we, have had, we have had it hammered into us culturally that we're proper Calvinists, that we have the same essence, that we've always known where we were going, um, and that, uh, that we've just been a little short of info. Or you get the other thing, which is, how often? I mean, I use this all the time. My party betrayed me. My party left me. My values haven't changed, uh, but my party changed. And you see how in our identity politics, we see change and transformation as sinful. Whereas uh, for people on the right, these narratives of change erase sin. They absolve us of sin. Uh, the sin is taken away when we convert. So, um, the, uh, and so we then, um, and then so we watch how um, one of the, um, uh, we watch, for instance, how this works with, um, transgender or transracial people on the left. It is always the discovery of a thing that has always been true. It has always been a thing that's always been true. Circumstances haven't changed. I didn't become a woman. I always was a woman from the moment I was born. Uh, 
uh, Rachel Dolezal tells us, right, that, that she was never really white from the moment she was born, uh, that it was always in her. So the idea is we don't convert, we have an immutable identity that is discovered. Um, and that all of our discourses about who we are are about information and its availability to us. I always knew, I just repressed. I always was, I, I just, and whereas uh, on the political right, um, it's amazing grace. Uh, the anti-slavery song, uh, that's how the uh, neo-confederates narrate their identity. They, they have that idea of a moment of grace where they, they changed, they reconnected with their roots, they became better men, eager to get back to lynching, you know. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, and, I, I, and I, I think this is really, um, this is really curious. Um, we, uh, uh, in many, and so we have, a we have a conservative response to change, we have a neo-traditionalist response to change. And as we can see, in both cases, this involves um, a deployment of practices or ways of being from the past that we decide to hold on to at the expense of the things we're willing to let go of. Um, how those choices are narrated is different, but um, this is just the nature of actual conversion. If you're having a real, when a society converts to a religion, that's what conversion is. You pick the things you want to keep, um, or you try to keep the things you want to keep. You pick a bunch of new things, and you and they fuse together. Uh, I uh, one of the sort of uh, scholarly movements I come out of is the are the conversion studies people. Uh, one of the things that a religion will do, of course, is it will try and find a pure version of itself an original version of itself, or a more original version. But that's impossible. It's fruitless, because the moment a religion comes into contact with a society and it starts being taken in, there are parts of that society's past or imagined past that the religion is used to amplify, not to stamp out. It's the story of Catholicism among the Zapatistas, that... Um, uh, they will, there are all kinds of things about being Mayan and holding your land in common and being, um, and having these uh, more egalitarian peasant communities. And the term they have for that is not Mayan, it's Catholic. And their argument is that they have the purest Catholicism in the world, that everybody else's Catholicism is watered down. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm going to just... Um, tell a story, it doesn't resolve our alliance with neo-traditionalists. Like the neo-traditionalists are the right crew for people who care about what we care about to ally with on a reserve. Like there are gonna be about four factions and I, I don't think we'd have as much politically in common with the other three on your typical reserve. Um, but 
I sat on the board of the founding board of Save Georgia Straight Alliance back in the 90s. Um, and uh, SGSA was a fascinating environmental organization then. It was started as a federation. Today, it's like a standard NGO that just works on the straight funds research, has some regular employees. But our plan was to federate the local environmental groups, most of which have died out, around the strait into this organization. Because this is, this is like 1980s civil society politics, so it's still all done by volunteers, and it's membership-driven, and it's highly local. Uh, so we got all these organizations to join, all these you know weird people to join, and we decided our first big event was going to be um, um, a uh, crossing of the strait in non-motorized uh, craft. So one person swam, people kayaked, people canoed, and they were to cross the strait and land at Sea Shelt, and then there'd be this. Um, this big um, concert, rally, et cetera, event, sort of like the Stein Valley Festival, there are picnic blankets spread out on the grass. And so finally the, um, the event was to start and um, there's this field of environmentalists and uh, back when uh, uh, I was an early adopter of the land acknowledgements, um, we, our board, invited um, a, uh, a hereditary elder uh, from the neo-traditionalists of the Seashell people uh, to open our event. And so she came to the microphone, and she's dressed very traditionally. She had these very long, very striking gray braids. Uh, woman in her probably 60s, 70s. And she said... I understand you've asked me to give you a traditional opening and blessing. All right, everybody on your knees, repeat after me. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, full of grace, etc. Um, and uh, I just... I was not surprised. I was merely, uh, I was just merely amused. The sense of ideological chaos and confusion uh, on the part of the crowd was, was truly delicious. It's one of my, my very, very favorite moments of doing left-wing politics in DC. Uh, okay, let me get to uh, Samina's questions now. Um, so, the identity secular is a really interesting one, and it grows more bizarre all the time, right? Because there are these moments in the 20th century, of course, where there are real movements for secularization, and they're fighting at the polls, in the streets, etc., against um, against religious conservatives. Um, and I think uh, in many ways where that has gone is illustrated more compellingly in Quebec than almost anywhere else. 30% uh, of Quebecers identify concurrently as Catholics and atheists. 
so 70% of Quebec is Catholic. Of those, over 40% are atheists. Uh, they, um, uh, and you see that with the secularism legislation in Quebec, where they proclaim secularism legislation banning religious symbols in front of a cross. Uh, there's, um, so I think unfortunately what's happened is we've seen secularist movements be forced into political compromises um, that have placed them so far away from their point of origin that it, it's almost absurd. Um, the fate of the Baathists uh, is a good example. The Baathists, an avowedly secular ideology. Um, in Syria today, Baathist and Alawite are synonymous. Um, the Baathists come from one Muslim denomination comprising 3% of the population. That's the party. Uh, and um, so there were, I would say, a number of what appeared to be politically hegemonic secularist movements. Um, but the problem is that the sort of, um, that both the processes of political alliance making and the ideological structures around these things make it harder and harder to um, be a secularist. Now this, this question was always a problem, right? If we look at Canadian secularism, Canadian secularism is driven by a particular um, Catholic heresy called Jansenism. So the Canadian state, the secularization of the Canadian state was carried out by men like Laurier and uh, the old man Trudeau um, based on their belief that God had asked them to secularize Canada. Uh, this is also true of the Mexican secularist movement. They were also Jansenists, and they believed that God had commanded them to secularize. And so, unfortunately, like the, the secularism and atheism have had this dance with one another, but it's a very inconclusive one. Ultimately, what is, what is destroying secularism um, as an idea about how to organize your society, not as an idea about God. But if we put all the theistic secularists and all the atheistic secularists together, why are they losing? Well, they're losing because of neoliberalism. Um, because churches are the organizations that are most efficient to replace services that are pulled out of collapsing programs. That where the state withdraws, it creates this kind of intertidal zone where not everything can be done for profit. So what occupies the space that is occupied by neither the state nor for-profit business? And the answer tends to be um, religious organizations. Now, uh, there's a great book 
uh, by Andrew Chestnut called Competitive Spirits. Um, uh, it, um, I think that's right. There are many great things about the book. Uh, one of the best things is that at about the halfway mark in the book, there is for absolutely no reason a two and a half page rant about the awfulness of Corona beer. Um, and then it stops and the book goes back to what it was doing before. Uh, anyway, Chestnut pointed out that this is actually even bigger than we think. That we think of like a church showing up and giving out scholarships or giving out food hampers as replacing the state. Uh, Chestnut looked at uh, healing magic. So if you're in Brazil and universal healthcare has been cut to the bone, that the program exists in name only, um, you know, your kidneys hurt, you can't get an ultrasound, um, what is the economically rational thing to do? Well, it's to find someone you can afford who says they can treat your kidneys. Who is that likely to be? Well, that might be an Umbanda practitioner, a Candomblé practitioner, uh, it, um, it might be any number of local magicians, healers, oracles. Um, and seeing them is economically rational because you are paying the money you can afford to get the service you can afford. And uh, magic is cheap. It may not have a great track record, but, for, but compared to other things that cost the same, it works pretty well. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so there is, um, I mean, there are structural problems around the secular, uh, but its ability to sustain an identity, um, has sort of, uh, has sort of collapsed. It now is like, it's a corner of an identity. Like, if you today identify as an autonomist in Quebec, then secularism is a corner of your identity. Or if you identify as a sovereigntist in Quebec, then uh, secularism is part of your identity. It might include the cross, but in terms of actually like the meaningful interventions of secularism, um, which is to compete, uh, to outcompete religion in providing universal services, um, Quebec doesn't rate so badly. Like it clearly, the Quebec state is um, racist and Islamophobic. Um, but if the center of your religion is not the religion's costume, then one might want to ask, where is the safest place for a low or zero income refugee to move in Canada? And we get different answers all of a sudden because Quebec has universal childcare, it has um, a whole bunch of school choice, it has all of these material things, vestiges of welfare states past that other social contracts in Canada lack. Um, and it, uh, so 
lots of Canada is racist and Islamophobic, um, but in an identitarian world, Quebec's racism and Islamophobia are vastly more offensive because they exist primarily in questions of public performance and optics rather than material questions of um, what benefits or mitigates harm in uh, racialized uh, communities. Okay. Um, now, it seems like the state of play is pretty much constantly in flux now. There's no real way to, uh, you know, to even say uh, where the march of the identitarians um, is heading uh, in the next while. I've I found cross-partisan Harper's Bazaar letter interesting for our purposes. First of all, because of the hierarchy in which people situated the signatories in terms of understanding how evil they were. Um, the idea that David Frum was really unproblematic compared to J.K. Rowling certainly speaks to our moment. The idea that the primary apologist for the Iraq war, man with the blood of one million Iraqis on his hands, raised nary an eyebrow um, when um, uh, really showed the degree to which um, the uh, the contemporary left is very, very focused on sins of identity. The other thing, though, that I found quite interesting um, in debates about the letter was what the letter meant. And this is an aspect of identity politics that I hadn't sort of put together with the absence of conversion. But you see, if we don't believe in conversion, and the identitarian left believes that people have an eternal essence that is either good or bad or male or female or black or white, if that's how we understand people, then what the letter means is the life narrative of its signatories. Uh, so I found it very interesting, the number of things that were vested in the text of the letter that never appeared in it. The letter was assailed for supporting the oppression of Palestine. Why? Because three signatories were, were um, Zionists. Um, the letter was assailed for being transphobic, even though it mentioned gender at no point, because one of the signatories is understood to be transphobic. Um, and so it was very interesting. Like, I read one attack on the article which read, um, wealthy transphobes are angry about being challenged on Twitter. And I thought, so th it's not just that there's a transphobe. It's that um, when identities interact, they have contaminating effects. That your identity becomes less pure when placed next to somebody with a problematic identity that we're also developing a contagion model, a purity and pollution model for thinking about identity. And here, I mean, this is an example of why 
why it's so important to keep uh, the Modi regime in the mix, because the purity and pollution model is so important to that particular identitarianism that I think we're, we're now seeing it um, in other places, that, um, uh, that who someone is, um, is a revelation of who they've always been, but one of the things that reveals that is whom they're standing beside. I, I'm really curious since the Harper's letter to look at how identitarianism shakes down in terms of the meaning of texts and in terms of how it melds um, with ideas of purity and pollution, which I haven't really seen so much before. I feel like, you know, if we did this course in six months, we'd have different material and we'd be explaining different phenomena. So let's say uh, I'll, I'll speak in terms of Indian context. So conversion is not always a choice there, right? right. Uh, it, it happens that people evolve and identify with something else because a certain ideology allows them to do that. Right. right? So there is a change uh, in their identities based on the ideologies which are driven either by the progressive left or by the conservatives or by the right wing. So I'm just trying to understand that uh, how to think about conversion, which is mainly driven by ideologies rather than by your essence or the inner self or the authentic self. Well, I mean, uh, conversion narratives are these theories of self. I absolutely agree with you that conversion itself is ideological. Um, or ideology is one of the factors in what actually produces conversion. Um, but I think that in order for conversion to work, uh, in order for it to be magical, um, we always have to efface our actual processes of conversion. Um, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment is, I think, one of the few books which actually narrates conversion the way conversion is. That um, it's like, um, uh, actually, a helpful thing is, um, is um, uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Um, Alcoholics Anonymous lives on a conversion narrative and literally involves God, right? We have a lot of government-funded God here when it comes to 12-step programs. Um, there's, uh, uh, and so you can look at AA and you can look at, well, what's the actual process? Well, only about 20% of people succeed at AA. And your normal process is that um, you tend to switch from habitual drinking to binge drinking. And then you gradually get your binge drinking under control over a period of a decade. But that's not how it narrates that. And in fact, it wouldn't be able to control 20% of people's drinking if it narrated what it actually did. Um, the magic or the belief in the magic is such an important handle on one's own self-control that, um, that conversion narratives in order to act, uh, the conversion in order to work, 
needs narrative structures that are magical. I converted to Christianity for a while, um, but it was very hard for me to find people who could um, tell a conversion story that was realistic. And so I felt quite alone because I didn't have a magical conversion story. I, I had a long-term conversion process. Um, and so there are these strong social incentives that surround you when you join a social movement that believes in conversion to build your own conversion story. Um, and there are strong social incentives um, in the case of left identitarianism, where if you're in a movement that denies conversion exists, you are going to, even if you've had a conversion experience, you will re-narrate it over time. And of course, there, part of the incentives there is that we, um, is that in the arguments we made that were necessary to um, normalize and universalize gay identities during the AIDS crisis, um, it became so important as a legitimating feature that whatever you liked now, you had always liked. You know, I, I think that... Uh, uh, so uh, you can sort of see the exigencies that happen for that. But yeah, people, um, I would say ideology significantly conditions conversion. I think the other thing that significantly conditions conversion is, um, is our basic questions of social community. At the end of the day, if you have married into a family that um, are converts or anti-converts, um, there is a huge system of social incentives for you to realign your worldview. And so I think, I think you're right that ideology changes your horizon of possibility. And then social community changes your system of incentives. And when those things act together, it produces conversion. Mm -hmm. I also asked uh, a question about phenomenological turn in the chat room. So can you answer that? Oh, sorry. Oh, here we go. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I should have used the term phenomenological in the beginning. Um, it's just that um, I do landscape phenomenology, and landscape phenomenology hasn't quite gone down the same rabbit hole as uh, more sort of anthropological things in the uh, but absolutely. I mean, yeah, and, the, and similarly, when I was talking about uh, abundant history last episode, that's the phenomenological turn hitting history. Uh, so, um, yeah, so certainly uh, that's the turn. I, um, I've just been conser uh, conservative in my, my use of it because... Um, when uh, I feel there's still a lot to be mined out of um, out of landscape phenomenology, especially when it intersects with temporal phenomenology, that really hasn't gone down that road of like socializing the personal or objectifying the social. It's still just interested in, um, I think, what <laughs> phenomenologists were uh, originally on about. Okay. Yeah, some, it was just that when you were talking about the letter, one of the things that I hadn't thought about until earlier this morning, when I received a couple of just a shared social media posts that were 
explaining how it was inappropriate to use a whole bunch of different terms and language because they didn't necessarily mean what the word meant, but it meant a whole host of other things that by, by using this word, it was perpetuating this, or it was signifying this, or actually it meant this. And an example was not to use the word addict for somebody who is addicted to something. Right. That was, that, that was, that was not an appropriate term to use. And I couldn't help but think back to the letter a little bit in that there, there seemed to be this idea that there were certain people who could understand the true meaning of something and it was somehow not available to other people. And I felt like that was maybe a part of the letter and also a part of these terms. And then when you, and it was another way in which you could play out the whole honor system was because somebody else might use this word and these words seem to continue to, to change. And I feel as though they're moving further and further into the realm of absurdity. I was, I was actually, I had to read it multiple times. I was pretty shocked that the word addict was, no, you can't use that to describe somebody who's addicted to something. Like it seemed very strange to me that this would be of all of our social problems right now, that this is one that requires such attention. And then it seemed to me to allow somebody in other conversations, somebody who isn't aware of this, uses the term actually to refer to something either benign or potentially helpful, or is trying to further the conversation to support better material outcomes for somebody who we might be referring to. And then no, this becomes, the focus and because somebody else has access to this knowledge they can then uh, perform that in a certain way and so I, I couldn't help but notice there was a lot more with the letter yeah no I, I see what you mean that people that they, they see another person's identity as being attacked they understand that that has happened and as an honorable person they're required to throw down uh, on behalf of their inferiors honor uh, and and it, I, I just I see it seeping further and further into so, it's going so far into our language. Yeah, well, it's um, I mean to the extent that it mean I mean we've certainly had episodes of I mean we certainly had a lot of this uh, during the first Gilded Age. Uh, it's when we invented the word moron, so that we had a term for stupid people that was not offensive. Uh, so there's certainly always been that euphemism cascade going on. Um, and I think it comes from a few things. I think you're very, you're quite right that, that this is, these are honor-based attacks and they're producing honor-based responses. I think another, um, another feature of it is that to describe oppression is itself oppression. Mm -hmm. uh, that um, for instance, if I say, and I mean, uh, or to mention, um, or to credit that a person who is now bad has thought a good thought. Uh, you'll recall uh, whenever I cite, well, here Terry Glavin did have a point. Um, I don't know whether you read um, uh, the eccentric millionaire's defensive view there, but... Uh, Apparently, Terry Glavin's name can't be mentioned in the presence of Punjabi people. Uh, so uh, uh, it's um, uh, so yeah. I think there's uh, there's all kinds of injuries to identity caused by narration, and it is a cult. We can't guess. If we could mm -hmm. guess, it wouldn't be powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We couldn't keep finding and ourselves outside the discourse. 
I think I think that is lending itself to a more rapid changing and alteration of what today is acceptable and tomorrow is changed and next week is changed. Uh, the more that I've been maybe paying more attention, I think in the past you would sort of see these things and maybe not give it the same level of focus, but I'm just, I'm seeing it evolve at such a rapid pace. Uh, and I was just going to share another story with that example. Somebody had shared with me a very, very short video that was uh, a Trump, pro-Trump uh, advert. I thought it was really cleverly done with the way that they had infused uh, black hip hop music and sort of put this into a Trump ad. It was a very short clip. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty clever. Mm-hmm. And the immediate response was, but surely you would, surely you would want Biden to win over Trump. Cause like, whoa, all, all that's happened is you've shown me this ad and I've just said, yeah, that was actually pretty clever. And that, and then suddenly I was, I didn't say anything about who I would want to win or who I would want to vote. It was just a clever ad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I hope that it's not impactful. And I think if it has a positive impact that it intends to have, that'll be a negative outcome overall. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's a clever ad. And it seems like we can't have that conversation anymore. Yes, it's, it is, um, well, I mean, the, yeah, the ways to generate offense, they are expanding. But I mean, in many ways, it's caused me to reassess the experience during the referendum. Um, that uh, I still mainly credit um, sabotage and looting for the loss of the referendum. But some of the insane strategic positions people took I'm beginning to realize we're a harbinger of this Harper's letter. The moment where um, the news came in that um, we'd fallen 30 points with liberal supporters, BC liberal supporters. And the response was, well, we've got to brand this as something more anti-liberal. It's like, what? So you want the vote to go down more? And it's like, well, yes, because if we can just get 95% of everybody else, it's like, but you're not going to get 95% of everyone else. Why are you choosing a strategy that will drive down our support in the single largest voting bloc in the province? But of course, the point was that those, we didn't want those votes because those votes were tainted. Those votes were tainted with evil and might contaminate us. And uh, the... Um, I mean, uh, and there was that, that thing of, you know, like, at, you know, even at the end, right? It's like, okay, I got the taxpayer movement. I got the Christian right. We're ready to go. And it's like, can I have the money now? And Finch is like, no, we're going to disband the referendum committee. Um, you know, God help us if, if we somehow got over half the vote with some people we didn't like voting for us. Uh, and so it was, it was, yeah, so there is this, the way Samir Gandesha put it, which I think is, is probably the, the clearest, is that, um, we no longer believe in, um, we don't evaluate, um, political coalitions as being positive. What matters is not what you have agreed with people that you will do together. What matters is the virtue and orthodoxy of the people you're with. 
And that has always, there has always been a left purity politics. There's always been a left sectarianism. But what there hasn't been is a sort of a centrist progressive purity politics or a centrist progressive sectarianism. It's that what was, it's that the behavior that we might have associated with 5% of the politically active population, we now associate with 50%. It's very strange. Um, well, but one, I one, really go for those examples. One, one could just look at how Trump would be received by his base for associating with Kanye and how Kanye is received by his base for associating with Trump. Right. <laughs> one is this is the end of the world and the other one is sure, if there's some sort of, if there's some sort of way that we can further our cause um, from the Trump base, of, okay, fine. Um, but uh, for that's it, this isn't going to discredit everything else this person must say. And I'm not, I'm not even a particular fan, yeah, but yeah. it's just very interesting to see the way that others will respond to and the, and the just extreme uh, backlash from a, the possibility of some sort of a political coalition. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, um, right, there was a politics of purity um, in America and it was uh, the politics of the racist right, um, hmm. right? There was a politics of racial purity, a politics of spatial purity, that uh, in the age of segregation, uh, purity and pollution discourses were the discourse of our adversaries and of the losing side. Uh, and um, it is interesting that although you know, we center this differently. It's not racial, it's not spatial. It's not ideological either though. At this point, like, ideology doesn't capture this honor politics because it isn't a set of ideas. Um, it can, ideas can bounce off it and reflect and you can see how it affects ideas, mm -hmm. but it itself is a set of practices Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think in, um, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, I think, so I, think, I think all of that further complicates the difficulty with accessing and understanding what is required to have membership in this group that is, I would suggest, hyper-exclusionary on grounds that one cannot even identify. Well, except that, um, you could see it as hyper-exclusionary. Uh, but you could also see it as highly democratic and easy to join. Uh, it's yes. both. It, um, the processes of shunning, the processes of shaming are processes anyone can join. And any person can invest their honor in one of those processes and come out with more honor at the end than they went in with. Um, but so anybody there, Anybody can also be subsequently shamed and shunned and removed. Of course. But it, uh, one of the things that makes it seductive is that the processes of excluding people or of purifying movements are processes that are growing more democratic when the normal democratic aspects of left civil society keep being stripped away. Not just in electoral politics, but much more in organizational politics, right? How many of the organizations we donate to do we exercise democratic rights in? Um, how often do we get to exercise those democratic rights? 
um, how eligible are we for positions of influence in those organizations, right? So you see that as we've monetized and professionalized um, where our energy used to go, um, this kind of strange politics is absorbing energy that was already being deflected outwards. Like people will often say, well, it's the pull factor of social media doing this. I would argue the push factor comes first. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, uh, the conversion of all of these small democracies in our society into authoritarian systems and often oligarchic authoritarian systems, right? Something like Dogwood um, or Atkinson, Tides, right? These are all family trusts. Um, there's a single rich family sitting at the top of this thing. <coughs> Those replace um, things like the old Sierra Club. And that happened in the 90s, not with the advent of Facebook. These developments began a decade and a half before the social media event would appear to absorb that energy. And so a lot of, um, and so in many ways, um, these processes, we keep finding their origins in the 90s and not in the noughts. Uh, Darcy Pocklington's done some, I think, very good work on... Um, really problematizing this story of identitarianism as a 21st century thing that um, we can see that where these civil society blockages appeared, almost immediately something grew out of that that was proto-identitarian. 